Greetings with lovers everywhere and welcome to E-Train Talks. I'm your host E-Train and I say this a lot, but today these words are truer than ever. This is a super duper special interview. I'm talking with an author and illustrator hero of mine. My guest is an author and illustrator whose work has captured the hearts and imaginations of readers young and old alike. From a Caldecott Medal winner to the 2023 National Book Award for Young People's Literature winner, my guest is pretty well known by all, and I bet that maybe you guys have heard of some of his books. It's with great pleasure and pride that I get to interview a true maestro, that's a word that I haven't said yet before, so I wanted to just add that, of children's literature. This is the one and only Dan Santa. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and it's an honor to have you here. I'm just super duper excited, and I love... Every single book that I read of yours, I absolutely loved it. And I'm really excited for this interview so I can shine a light on all of your amazing stories to everybody listening. Thank you very much. Apologies, I'm not all dressed up like you are. It's, uh, you know, you live in Southern California and uh, we're not very, we're not very well equipped for the cold. And so right now it's 65 degrees, which I'm sure the rest of the country would probably scoff at. But for someone <laughs> like myself, I am, I am freezing. So yeah. forgive me for the attire. I mean, it's 10 a.m. in the morning, so. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So the first question is a bit about your illustrations. So your illustrations are always beautiful and they demonstrate the emotions conveyed through the words written on the page. They just like, when you see the words and you see your illustrations, they just match up perfectly, which I really, really enjoy reading. So has art and drawing always been a passion of yours? And when did you think that it could actually become a career? It's funny that you asked that. I remember the first time I was acknowledged by a teacher about my art efforts. It was in kindergarten. I remember you had a coloring page and it was yeah. like a little log cabin or something like that from a book. And I remember coloring the log cabin, but then I went outside of it and I drew the grass and the stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. And I tried to make it look exactly like the picture in the book. And it was so like the teacher, the, the, the elementary school teacher was so impressed. She gave me two stars instead of one. Oh. And so I remember going to a parent-teacher conference and the teacher saying to my to my parents, well, your, your son seems very gifted in arts. So you should sign up for art classes. And my parents were like, mm, no, that's nice. It's, it's a hobby, but I don't think he'll ever do that for a living. And so they never encouraged me to take art classes. So for years, it was, it was ingrained on in my mind that I was going to grow up and be a doctor. That's what my parents wanted me to do. Yeah. And it wasn't until... It wasn't until college, but I kept drawing, I kept practicing, I kept teaching myself how to draw just because when you're a kid and you go to school and you draw and like all the other kids look at you and they're like, whoa, you drew a puppy, oh, you drew a robot. It becomes like this magic power that you have, right? Right. And so you wanna get better at it. And then and then it wasn't until I was in college, I was getting a, a degree in microbiology and uh, all my all my roommates at the time I was this close to going to dental school and it wasn't until my uh, college roommate stopped me and they said, nah, you're going to be miserable being a dentist. We know you love art. Why don't you see if you can get into art school? And I thought that was a pretty interesting challenge. Like, well, let's see if I'm good enough to get into art school. Mm-hmm. So I threw together a portfolio without any formal training whatsoever, sent, submitted it to all these art schools around the country. And then I got in. And that was it. That was a hook. And it wasn't until I got into art school when I 
realized that there was a children's book illustration course because I thought I wanted to be an animator. And then when I tried animating, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> and so little known fact, I was in this children's book illustration course uh, with with the other, you know, talented author, Peter Brown. And he and I, we were like one of the handful of kids that were in children's books. Um, and then I graduated in art school in 2001. And joined an organization, the SCBWI, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And then, uh, yeah, uh, it didn't really hit me until, until, uh, gosh, until I graduated from art school. Uh, and I was probably, boy, 20, 23 at the time. <clears throat> I thought it was a late start, but, you know, now that I've been doing it for, boy, this is my 20th year. Uh, um. It, it feels good that I've managed to, uh, you know, tread water for a super long time and now I can do it full time. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. Google Doodles actually heard about your illustrations and you had the chance to create Google Doodles, but you turned it down because you dreamed of writing children's books. So was that a tough decision to make? Oh, it was absolutely tough. You know, when you're when you're when you're a, when you're a husband and a parent. There comes a point where you think about providing for your family. And I remember thinking to myself, should I do the responsible thing and take this really lucrative job as a, a creative director over at Google? And then I, my, you know, they don't have to worry about healthcare. They don't have to worry about a good school district. Or do I want to pursue my passions as an author where you don't know if you're going to get another job. You don't know how well your books are going to sell. Right. And so it was very hard. I felt very selfish deciding on that because I thought, well, you know, what if I fail? Like, this will be awful. Like, I turned down this really lucrative job at Google to, to write and do what I thought I loved most, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember going around asking other authors what they would do. And shockingly, at the time, uh, a good chunk of them said that they would take the job at Google. And I remember thinking to myself wait, that's not what I wanted to hear. And so I think deep inside, I know the answer the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's interesting because to this day, I still have, I still have the job offer. See, I still, I still, I still have the, I still have the envelope here, you know, and I've had it for, gosh, this is going on like 12 years now. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling myself that I didn't want to ever regret making that decision. And I wanted to work really hard and make sure that my choice as, a, as an author was not going to be regretted. And, and so that was a motivation for me to work even harder in children's publishing. And, you know, I think, I think it was one of those forks in the road of life where, uh, you know, I was really grateful for the opportunity and I'm, I'm really proud of myself for sticking to my guns. Yeah. And I think the entire children's literature world, middle grade picture books, were all incredibly happy that you turned down that job. And now, Look at you now. You're, Look at me now. I get, to, I get to wear Lululemon pants and I get yeah. to I get to stay here in the studio with my my pets. Yeah. And, and work on books. Yeah, it's 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 the dream. Yeah, you live in the dream. Nice. So I saw on your social media that during the book tour of your graphic memoir, A First Time for Everything, I don't have the book with the sticker, <laughs> but like we tried on Amazon and all that. Okay, whatever. Um, so you reunited with reunited with some of the friends that you made on that fateful trip to Europe. Yeah. So you wrote about it. It's beloved by all of the middle grade world. So 
what emotions did you experience when you came face to face with everyone again, especially with those who were pretty, pretty big characters in the story like Amy? So it was interesting because when I had to, when I was going to write the story, I asked my friend Raina Telgemeier if I should tell the characters, the people who actually were on the trip, if I, you know, that I was writing this book, especially Amy, because, you know, if you recall, uh, Raina wrote a book called Drama, which was mirroring her own personal life. Mm-hmm. And, and in that in that story, she talks about a boy that she liked. And Raina said, yes, you have to tell her because the last thing a girl would want is for a book to come out about her that she didn't know anything about. So I had actually kept in touch with quite a few of them on Facebook. And I put them all together in a Facebook message. And I said, hey, everybody, remember that crazy trip we took to, to Europe 30 years ago? And all these, all these people came back and they were telling me these stories like, oh, yeah, that's great. And I said, I'm writing a book about it. And everybody was really excited, like, yay, yay. And I remember Amy messaging me like, whoa, really? And, and then I had, to, I had to break off into a separate conversation and say, well, yes, um, I know we haven't seen each other in 30 years, but uh, obviously you are going to be a significant part of the story. And uh, if, this, if you find this unsettling, you know, I, I just want to... I want you to to know that uh, you know I don't I don't I don't intend on publishing this without your approval, uh, and if you're okay with it. And she was, and she was absolutely helpful. She had her journal, and she transcribed everything from the journal, from you know hotels we stayed at, what the weather was like, foods we ate. She was very thorough. Um, now, when writing the book, <clears throat> one of the amazing things is that you're recounting these old memories. And you're remembering, you're trying to remember every little detail and little snippets from photos and everything. And what ends up happening is that those feelings that you had when you were 13, the 13 year old inside you is still there 30 years later, almost as if it was yesterday. And so it was really great. Like, you know, like the little crush kind of came back, you're writing these stories and, mm-hmm. and, and you're really getting back into your old character. And then when the book comes out and you're going on tour, and you're inviting people to be your guests at the event. It was like a wonderful reunion. So I would share pictures and and, and sketches on Instagram and social media. <clears throat> and surprisingly, there were a lot of people who were on the trip who were watching my Instagram account. Some of them not even revealing that they were watching me the whole time. Like, hey, I remember that part of the trip. And I look at it and I'd say, you've been watching me for years, but not, not <laughs> for one second have you told me that like you were saying hi or anything and so I thought that was I thought that was really amusing but the entire experience became this wonderful like this wonderful uh like reunion and Mm -hmm. and everybody was just so happy to to be a part of it and uh for those of you who are curious like if you if you get the book and you go to the dedication page where there's a mixtape there's a QR code on there and if you scan the QR code it will take you to two videos uh where I actually interview uh, a bunch of folks who were on the trip. Uh, one video is with uh, Joy, Shelley, and Daryl. And then the second video is with Amy. And, you know, it was just wonderful to catch up with these folks and, you know, just see them after all these years and just see how much we've changed. Yeah. Um, and and in the end, the book kind of became like a really nice souvenir, like one last souvenir, like a, like a yearbook of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been it's been an amazingly wonderful experience uh, getting back in touch with everybody and, and you know, and uh, 
it, it's almost like it's almost like I, my family has grown a little bit more yeah. so it's been great yeah it came it turned into like a, from a friend reunion to kind of like a family reunion yeah but you know people that you actually want to see yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so how did your wife feel about it you were writing about your whole crush with amy oh I- yeah yeah no that's a that's that's the million dollar question isn't it <laughs> um so i remember i remember telling my wife that i was doing this book i remember my boys I remember my boys asking me all these questions. So, so it really spurred because my oldest son at the time, he was 13. Mm-hmm. And I think he was getting to a point where girls were starting to like him. And he asked me, dad, when was the first time you fell in love? And I thought about it for a minute. And I thought about this trip to Europe and I was telling him all the details and their minds were blown. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did all this at 13. <laughs> and and I remember, my, I remember my boys asking me like, well, do you keep in touch with her? Where is she now? And so I pulled up her Facebook page and I showed her and like my youngest son, who was like 10, he looks and he's like, wow, she looks like mom. And (laughs) and I remember, I remember my wife, like, excuse me, what? And yeah. And I remember, I remember my wife was a little weirded out about it at the time. And then it wasn't until the book was done and she finally read it. And she realized that it was more about me learning to like myself than me just kind of you know, reigniting this old crush, you know, and I think there was an appreciation that she had finally, because I think, yeah, if anybody could be weird, like, you know, you're married to me, why would you want to write a story about an old girlfriend that you knew for three weeks? Um, But when she read the story, and she realized that it was more about me learning to like myself, you know, she she really engaged with it, she warmed up to the whole idea, and she was just, you know, totally wonderful during the whole process. And now, I mean, for me, it's weird because my wife and Amy are friends on Facebook and they chat left and right. And so <laughs> that's, that's interesting. But yeah, my, my wife was my wife was a total champ. She was wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. So my next question for you is a bit about kind of the balance between illustrating and writing. So which comes first in your project when you're writing your stories? <laughs> is it the words or is it the pictures? It's interesting. Uh, it depends on the project. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll think of an idea and then usually I like to think about the entire story first. Like typically I want to try to, I want to try to come up with a good idea for a story. I'm very economical with my time. So I'll think about a story and I won't draw anything unless I feel like it's worth my time because I'm always working on several projects at once mm-hmm. and my time is very valuable. So I don't want to spend all this time drawing something. And I think like, oh, well, that was a waste. But sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll draw something and then the drawing will inspire an idea. You know, situations vary from, from project to project. Um, you know, a project like Beekle, for instance, that was something that came up um, just, just as an idea of me asking, well, you know, what if what if imaginary friends were waiting to be imagined, right? And then I started doing little drawings of imaginary friends and the kids they would possibly pair up with. And then that, that spread into a story about uh, about Beekle, right? A story like After the Fall, you know, I really love the idea of Humpty Dumpty trying to recover from the aftermath of falling. So the story was there first. And then I just did drawings to come with that. Yeah. So each project is a little different. Um, but I think I think the one gift that I have as an author and illustrator is that I have the freedom to go back and forth and do both at the same time. So more often than not, when I'm working on a project, 
the writing and the writing and illustrating kind of come up together at the same time. And mm -hmm. then I'll realize that maybe there's certain moments that lean better uh, towards drawing and maybe some scenes that lean better towards words. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting to use both sides of my brain definitely is an advantage when it mm -hmm. comes to writing a story. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about Adventures of Beagle, and now here's a question about it. So yeah. as many of our viewers probably know, not only do you write for middle grade, but you're also an author of an illustrator of extraordinary picture books like The Adventures of Beagle. And do you think that writing picture books is an easier or harder process than middle grade? Well, now that I've tried both, doing graphic novels and middle grade and picture books True, and the yeah. like, um, picture books are actually much harder. Really? Uh, really, it's, um, you know, trying to trying to capture the emotion and everything of a character in just 32 pages, extremely hard. And especially doing a word count around a thousand words, you have to be very extremely economical with your words and your pacing and, and your illustrations and things like that. Whereas if I'm doing a, if I'm doing a graphic novel, I can spend 10 pages on a scene building a moment. Like I feel more comfortable being able to do something like that and say, show me a vital part of this story in one spread. Yeah. It, after, after all these years, I mean, people know me most as, as a picture book author because I've done way more of those over the years. But the longer I've been in this business, the longer like the more i've 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 realized that doing picture books is probably the hardest thing you can do um and right now i actually i actually owe one more picture book to my publisher and i've had writer's block for like the last five years i don't know what to i like i'll show something to my editor and she'll look at it and she'll say no you can do better no this is too didactic no no i don't like this and i just feel stuck and so that's why I, I've shifted gears into doing middle grade and graphic novels and things like that, because right now that's where my creativity is, is, is yeah. really gelling. And so I'm doing more of those and it just comes out a lot easier. And my editor says, this picture book is here, you know, you, you'll give it to us when it's ready. But the most important part is to not force it because like, if you force it, it'll never come. And so that's, that's where I'm at right now, but easily without a doubt. I would have to say picture books are the hardest things to make. Never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Just yeah. A, thousand, a thousand word count is crazy for a whole story. Right. You know, sometimes you have to describe an entire moment, an entire feeling in like a few sentences. It's, it's so hard. Yeah. So... It's pretty amazing how you've had the opportunity to illustrate stories for many prolific writers, yeah. and actors as well. So how do you get gigs as a book illustrator? Do people kind of contact you? Do they reach out to you? Or is there a different way? So, gosh, you know, being in this business for 20 years, I've been I've been approached many different ways. So the most common route is the author will sell the manuscripts to the publisher. And then the publisher scours you know the internet or all the postcards and the mailers that they get to find the right illustrator and then they contact the illustrator mm -hmm. it's not usually up to the to the author to find it's up to the publisher and so for the vast majority of the books that I've worked on the publisher reeks out to me and and they'll ask me to illustrate a, a project um there are some cases there are some exceptions where maybe an established author 
will ask me if uh, if I would like to work on a project, and then we go in as a as a pair. Uh, that doesn't happen too often, but it has happened before. Um, and then sometimes you'll have celebrities like Jake Gyllenhaal who will just come into your DMs on Instagram and say, "Hi, I'm Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, maybe you've heard of me. Uh, I sold this manuscript to Macmillan, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in you know illustrating it." And you say, uh, "I would just love to." chat with Jake Gyllenhaal or, you know, someone like Henry Winkler, who, you know, who reached out to me formally, you know, through uh, a mutual friend. Uh, and then, and then that's how, that's how it came about. Different ways, but most customarily you go to the publisher, but you know, there have been a few exceptions. Uh, I was hoping for like a really interesting one, like somebody like finding your address, going to your house and like giving you like a big, like surprise party, like illustrate my book uh I, I've had one case where uh there's this great there's this great comedian writer uh from from this comedy troupe called the Lonely Island mm -hmm. uh, his name is Yorma Takone and you know he's written some really great movies like Hot Rod and things like that anyway I remember him emailing me one year uh I want to say this was like 2017 and I you know I get this email it says Yorma Takone and it's like I know who this is. I never expected an email from him. And he says, uh, yeah, my name's Yorma. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of a comedy troupe called The Lonely Island. And uh, you may not remember this, but 10 years ago, you worked with my mother, who was an art director up in the <laughs> Bay Area. And, uh, you know, I have a picture book manuscript and she recommended that I reach out to you. And he said, would you mind if I gave you a call to talk about children's books? And I said, sure, here's my cell phone number. Literally. Three minutes later, I get a phone call. He says, hey, this is Yorma. And I thought, I just I just sent you an email three minutes ago. And you called me right there. And then we went back and forth working on a story. And like maybe a couple hours later, you know, he said, well, what do you think? You know, and I said, that, that sounds great. You know, the story seems to work pretty well. You, you have a pretty good handle on this. And he's like, can you help me sell it? And I said, okay, let me introduce you to my, 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 my agent. And then a week later, we sold it. And, and, and Yorma said, can you illustrate it? And I said, well, yeah, I helped you with the story. So yeah, I, I, think, yeah. I think it's pretty much a done deal. <clears throat> so other than Jake Gyllenhaal, that's probably my other exciting story. Not like a party or a celebration, but the way it happened so quickly yeah. is probably the most interesting thing. Maybe it's a good thing that it's not a super big thing. It's kind of less pressure as well. You know, I mean, I've, also done, a lot. I've, hundred, I've, I've done over 120 books in my career. It would just be, that'd be a lot of partying. I'd be, I'd be very tired. It's like, oh, another book deal and another party. Like that would, I'd be exhausted. This place would be a mess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can't compete with my house. Like just, I have this setup right here, just my bookshelf behind me. But if I turn, like slightly turn the computer, messiest room you'll ever see. Oh yeah, no, it's utter chaos over here. Like I'm, I'm like right now. This drawing table right here to set up for a book that I'm illustrating, and there's like a box of junk and props that I'm using because it's a book that I'm doing photography with. Um, so it's an absolute mess. It's a circus in here. Yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell us about your upcoming middle grade book series written with Lisa Yee, The Misfits? It's coming to yeah. shelves soon. So, can you give a brief pitch to get us excited? Yeah, so the story is about uh, a girl. Her name is Olive, 
and uh, you know she doesn't seem to fit in school anywhere. And then she gets she gets whisked away to this to this arts academy, like this gifted and talented school, which is out on an island uh, in San Francisco in the Bay. Kind of, I don't want to say it's Alcatraz, but it kind of feels like this mm. gifted and talented art school and craft school for kids. Uh, and she goes there, and and she feels like she really. You know, she really gels because everybody's like artistic inclined, but she still doesn't understand why she's there. And it turns out from from much examination that uh, she's part of a a spy program where where kids are you know in a position where they're not taken too seriously, so they can get into all these top secret places. And she's paired up with five other kids, uh, and then they go out and they solve these you know they solve these global mysteries and crimes. And in this particular case, uh, there's this there's this uh, you know, this this very discreet and secretive uh, jewel thief that's been going around stealing all these valuable jewels uh, around the world. And so it's up to her and her friends uh, to go out with all their fancy gadgets and a self-driving car to unlock the mystery uh, and just kind of understand what it's like to work as a team and find out what everybody else's skills are. You know, one's a computer expert, another one's very good. Uh, at the art of conversation so you can get mm -hmm. into these places just by like dabbling in conversation um, you know and all of us trying to figure out what she's good at and she grew up with a grandmother who uh, was really into gymnastics and ballet and so she's she's learning to craft those one's a very good hand fighter uh, another one is a is a total bookworm and can figure out all sorts of uh, other clues I mean it's a really you know, I think the best way to describe it, it's like, it's like, uh, gosh, I'm going to date myself. It's like an old show, the A-team, but it has teenage kids. I think, I think maybe, uh, again, I'm dating myself. The perfect, the perfect example would be like this old show called The Mod Squad, uh, which was about these kids who were, who were these little, little troublemakers, but they were kind of put in a position to solve crimes. And, and, and it was their, it was their troublesome nature that made them valuable assets to getting into the seedy underbelly of the world to, to solve mysteries. And, and so that's the, that's the misfits in a nutshell. Yeah. My dad wouldn't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, ha I had to add it. I had to do that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. All right. So a first time for everything as the whole middle grade book world knows. And if you don't probably live, living under a rock. So it was recently awarded the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. And I'm just so happy for you. So happy for everybody Thank who you. worked on the story. And it's incredibly deserving. So it must have been the greatest feeling in the world, or at least up there with like being a dad or something. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because when you win an award like the Caldecott Medal, they call you and they say, hey, just want you to know it's 430 in the morning. You've won this award. You probably want to show up here in San Francisco on this date and you're going to give a speech and we're going to give you an award and go, wow, that's fantastic. You know, you're alone in your in your bedroom uh, with your wife and you wake up the kids screaming like, oh, I want a major literary award. The thing about the National Book Award is they say, listen, we want you to know that you've made a long list. There's 10 people <laughs> that were up for this one award and we're going to narrow it down to five. And you're just so thrilled. Oh, my gosh, I got on the long list. And then you have to wait two or three more weeks. Oh my gosh, I hope I get on that top five shortlist, right? And then three weeks later, you're just nervous. You're like on pins and needles. And then someone calls you, says, you've made the shortlist. You go, oh my gosh, that's great. I'm top five. That's amazing, right? And then they say, you have to show up in an event 
and you have to wear a tuxedo and you fly <laughs> all the way to New York and you're not going to know, no one's going to know who's going to win till that day. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm just happy that I'm on the short list. But if I won this major award in front of Oprah Winfrey and all these other celebrities, that would be amazing, right? And so I remember meeting all the finalists for the first time in one room. Everybody was very happy to meet each other, but everyone was super nervous. I remember the day of the banquet, no one wanted to eat because they were so nervous. I, on the other hand, was a little bit at ease because I had already won a Caldecott medal. So I told myself like, well, I don't need this. And I'm just eating all this food, you know, while everyone's like, how can you eat? And I'm just like, oh, because I, I don't know. Like, I'm not too worried about winning this award. I'm just happy that I got, you know, a finalist medal, right? And then you sit there when they're about ready to read off the winner. And then all those nerves come in and you're like, oh my gosh, this is happening, right? And, and it doesn't hit you until they say your name. And then when they say your name, then suddenly you get that exact same feeling. Like when you get a phone call from someone telling you that you won the Caldecott medal. Except now you're not alone in your bedroom. Everybody's watching you react <laughs> to it, you know? And so you sit there and you spend 15 or 20 seconds trying to calm yourself down and collect yourself because now you know you have to go up on stage and immediately give an acceptance speech in front of everyone. So it's very, it's very nerve wracking, but it's also one of the most amazing rushes I've ever experienced in my life. So uh, I'm very fortunate. I never thought that I would ever be in the company of fellow names like Jacqueline Woodson and Tobin Anderson and, and other folks, but I, I'm grateful for it. Uh, and more importantly, like, I'm just, I'm just grateful for all the people that helped me get to this point. My editor, my agent, you know, the entire art team, uh, everybody in the publicity of Macmillan, like, it's just been an amazing opportunity. That's so cool. And did everybody have to write, even the finalists who might not have won, did they all have to write their own acceptance speech beforehand just in case they did win? Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of the weird part was that I think we all had like little acceptance speeches in our pockets thinking like, well, you never know. Right. Yeah. I mean, even I did, like I wrote it, I wrote it the morning before, you know, like I think it was, I was, I was, I didn't feel nervous. Like, you know, like when you're trying to watch an NBA final or something, you're watching yeah. someone do a free throw, you're sitting there like, Oh, please make that shot. <laughs> I didn't have those feelings. I was just kind of like, Hey, it's great to be in New York. But subconsciously, I kept waking up at three in the morning and I said, okay, I don't feel nervous, but subconsciously my body's like, yeah. oh my gosh, something's happening. And I just kept waking up at three in the morning. And I remember it was, uh, it was the day before and I woke up at three in the morning and I said, well, I guess I should write something. Yeah. You know? And I sat there and I, I wrote a speech real quickly. Maybe it took me about a half hour and, and I, had my, I had my agent printed out. And then I said, okay, well, I'm just gonna keep it in my pocket and, you know, fingers crossed, maybe I'll use it. Maybe I won't, but yeah. uh, you know, that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody kind of had, you know, something because we all knew that there was a lot of smart people in that room and we didn't want to kind of babble and just say nothing important. So yeah, nice to have your thoughts on a piece of paper. Yeah. You got LeVar Burton there. You got Jacqueline Wilson. Right. Like you don't want to embarrass yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So once again, like, congratulations for that. That's so. Like, Thank you. So you can see so it right cool. there. See right here. That's, that's the actual, that's the award. Um, and the thing, the thing weighs 17 pounds. 
And you have to, you like put that in your luggage? Did they say anything? Well, that was the thing. When I when I flew to New York, I didn't even I didn't even make room in my luggage because I didn't think I would actually win. Yeah. And so I went there and I got it and I held I here, I held it, I held my hands, and I said, I have absolutely no idea how I'm gonna carry this home. And the <laughs> and the publicist said, Oh, we'll mail it back to you. And it was uh 17 pounds, and I said, Oh gosh, that's gonna be like $120. She's like, oh no, it's gonna be way more than that, but that's not <laughs> your concern. So that was that was uh that was nerve-wracking. And I just remember I remember holding it and thinking, like, this is a blunt murder weapon. This is <laughs> like they should do a new edition of Clue where it could be Colonel Mustard in the library with the National Book Award. Like that just it was because it's solid bronze. It's solid bronze. It's like it weighs a ton. It weighs. It weighs like it weighs like a three month old. <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> yeah. Uh. Wow. I'm just trying to think. Like you're in. Your how would you feel? Like your luggage, your suitcase weight goes over the limit. And you got to pay like an extra sixty dollars. Like I get, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, because there was a part of me that thought, well, maybe I should leave some room in my luggage just in case and then I thought you know what I might jinx things if I do that and it yeah. seems very arrogant like I better leave some room in my bag to bring it home so I never <laughs> yeah. even I never even considered I said if I win this I'll worry about it later and yeah then it became, yeah became a later issue <laughs> yeah it did but you got it all sorted out it's at your home now and you can like if you ever need yeah. motivation you can just stare at that and you're like yeah I'm dancing yeah. and I won the national book award Right, right. And that was great because then also while I'm accepting the award, a lot of people don't know this. I'm up at the I'm up at the I'm up at the uh at the stage giving my speech. And while I'm giving my speech, my phone is just blowing up. It's just <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Everyone's just congratulating me and sending me texts. I remember thinking to myself, like, do you think now's a good time to send, to send <laughs> texts to me? And then I look at it and it's like, oh, a text from Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, a text from Henry Winkler. These are amazing. My life is so bizarre right now, but yeah. that's, it's been quite a year for me. It has. So my parents really wanted me to ask this question and they never usually come in with like questions. <laughs> I usually just have to do all this by myself. So my parents are quite, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say this like, cause my dad edits this, but they're kind of, they're quite old. So, <laughs> um, they mean, they are huge fans of Henry Winkler. And I'm yeah. not calling you old, Henry, if you're watching this. You're you're good age. Um, <laughs> so you worked with the Fonz, aka the wonderful Henry Winkler, on Detective Duck. And my parents were big fans of his from Happy Days and Arrested Development. And when I told him that you illustrated, when I told my dad, when I told my mom that you illustrated for him and worked with him on stories, they kind of made me promise to ask you. They kind of like passive aggressively kind of made made me. But, you know, I also was curious myself. So yeah. what was it like working with them? Imagine, imagine hanging out with one of the Beatles, like Paul McCartney, someone who had won at life at a very young age. Because he yeah. was the Fonz, like when he was in his late 20s, early 30s, right? And he was so iconic at that point that pretty much everybody in the world knew who he was. Like that's how famous Arthur wow. Fonzarelli was in, in the cultural zeitgeist of everything. 
Now, here he is, you know, 44 years later after Happy Days. And you're walking, you're walking to the airport with him because you're going on tour with Henry Winkler. And everywhere he walks, everyone recognizes him. Hey, are you? He's like, yes, I am. <laughs> Hi, can I take a selfie? Like, sure thing. He is the nicest person on earth. And it, he's just this person who just exudes joy wherever he goes. Everyone's so happy, so excited to see him. He he has absolutely no enemies. You know, he's someone who is is recognized by everyone, and he and he reciprocates that love with love right back. Like if your parents ever saw him at an event, like he would probably be so kind and just reach out and and give a hug and just he's so so kind. And to this day, I still get texts from him. You know, just about random things and he's, he's such a sweet man and working with him like he really appreciates every process uh every part of the process um and he was just oh my gosh so the first time I met him was through the co-author Lynn Oliver uh who actually founded the SCBWI and Lynn sends me an email she says uh I have a friend that would love to meet you would you like to come down to the office and I remember driving down to the office uh and going into the going into her office and there Henry Winkler is sitting in a rocking chair, right? And I walk in and Henry Winkler stands up and he makes a beeline straight to me. And he holds, he holds this long gaze into my eyes and he's shaking my hands, you know, with both of his hands. And he looks at me and he says, I am such a huge fan of yours. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, you're the Fonz. Like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing, right? And so from that point on, you know, it was almost like, it was, it was almost like, it was almost like he was an uncle to me. Like that's that's the kind of love that he exudes. Like he, you know, if he likes you, if if you know, if if he really admires you, then you pretty much have a friend for life. That's awesome. And so yeah. Dad, uh, take out that part where I called Henry Winkler old. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you can you can keep the part where I called you old, but like um Oh, I know I'm old. I'm probably I'm probably older than your parents. I'll say that. So I'll give your parents. They're in their 50s. So I, th I think that's one. That's like some insurance <laughs> for you. Okay. I'm at, when I, I was pointing, like when I said you old, I was talking to my dad, like kind of like talking, but not talking to him. You're, you're, <laughs> you're not old. You're not old. Well, you know, I'm, 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 I would say that I'm towards the tail end of my prime. You know, I'm <laughs> setting, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for a half marathon, the 13 mile run. The weird part is that here I am at 48 years old, parts of my body just hurt because you get to an age where it's like, yeah, you just hurt. Um, but I know that my young 13 year old self would never be able to run 13 miles. So in a bizarre way, I'm in better shape now than I ever was in my childhood. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd be able to run that 13 mile either. So maybe maybe when I'm 48, 49, um, if you want to do something that will completely change your own personal outlook or your personal view of yourself, run a half marathon or a marathon. It will change the way you, you think about yourself. It will just magically transform you into the most confident person in the world. And I promise you, like if you tried, if you trained and you actually did it, like you don't have to run the whole thing. But the fact that you went 13 miles somewhere, like not many people can can claim that. And so if you're one of those few people that said, I've run a half marathon, everybody is impressed. Like, oh my gosh, you ran 13 miles. Like you didn't have anything else better to do, you know? So that's, that's something that I think 
is a valuable confidence booster for anybody who's ever. And I and I'm pretty sure because I was the last person on earth that loved running or any kind of physical fitness. Uh, but then I just took it up because I realized, you know, like I was getting really unhealthy, just sitting around, just making books all day. And so I said, well, I should, I should get some exercise. And, and, you know, I would run around the neighborhood and then two miles became four miles, which became eight miles, 13 miles, a marathon. And so now someone who absolutely hated running, now it's like my favorite thing to do. I never would have thought in my life that it was something that I would say, but to this day, I now make it a valuable part of my life at least four or five times a week. That's cool. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I hope that one day I'll have the same kind of motivation to start running. Well, the fact that you have this podcast doing book reviews, uh, you know, at your age for, for the last two years tells me that I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you really wanted to do something like that, I'm pretty sure you'd be well capable of doing it because I can't imagine any child your age doing something like this doing a podcast interviewing authors like i i highly commend you for your ambitions so i mean you just take that ambitious um you know self self-starting motivation and say you know what i want to run a half marathon yeah i'm pretty sure you would be able to do it i i have no doubt well maybe maybe one day but for now i gotta focus on this podcast thing sure (laughs) (laughs) so is there a particular genre or thing (laughs) that you've yet to write about so far? I mean, I know you've collaborated on like 120 books, but is there anything that you haven't written about or illustrated that you hope to explore in your future works? I guess, I guess if you want to call it a genre, I want to work on a series. Like I want to do a continuation of a yeah. character mm-hmm. into a long arc. So um, for for some folks, uh, I, did a, I did a graphic novel called Sidekicks way back in 2010. And it was about superhero sidekicks. Um, and and I remember I remember when that book came out, it did very well. And all these kids asked me, "Are you going to do another one? Are you going to do another one?" And I said, "Sure, maybe." Uh, and then and then here I am, 12, 13 years later, I'm finally doing three more Sidekicks books. Uh, looking forward to doing that. Uh, I just sold I just sold a graphic novel series to Macmillan, um, and it's about it's about a mer boy who uh, you know he has a like mermaids have human upper body, fish, yeah. fish lower body. This is about a boy who has a fish head, but a human body. Mm. And so he, 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 he goes to this, he goes to this little town that has like this uh, creature from the black lagoon kind of mythical creature. Uh, and he's thinking that maybe he's related to it somehow. And so he comes to the little town enrolls in the elementary school and tries to fit in with all the other kids. Uh, and, and the working title right now is called uh, a fish boy named Sashimi. Um, so I'm working on a series, uh, other things that I I'm interested in, uh, I want to do a middle grade novel, um, you know, no illustrations. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working on one right now, which is about, uh, urban legends in Los Angeles. Um, uh, I've, I've also, I've also been really curious on doing like a mystery of some sort. Mm. Uh, so those are some things that I've, I've got on my mind, um, you know, another one, I have another idea of a fantasy. There's like a, a, a fantasy, um, like a fantasy adventure story that has magic and swords, but also has robots. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of ideas. I'm actually at a point in my life where I'm thinking, I think I have more ideas than I have years of my life. So hmm. we'll see. We'll see what we'll I can see. get to. 
Yeah. And I think I have one more memoir in me. Uh, what about my parents? That'd be cool. Yeah. Looking forward to that. So now it's time for the final question of the interview. And yeah. that makes me sad because I've really enjoyed this interview. <laughs> sure. So Same. if you could be or meet any literary character, it could be your favorite author, or you could meet your favorite book character, <laughs> who would it be and why? Okay, so I feel like this is really cliche because because Wonka just came out in theaters. Oh, yeah. And Timothy Chalamet. But I would want to, I think I would want to be Willy Wonka only because here is this person. He's passionate about his craft of making candy, but he's also a little weird and mysterious. But the best part about it is that he doesn't seem to have any anxieties or concerns about what his next big thing will be. He just has this confidence that whatever he comes up with will work and it'll be a fantastic idea, right? I would love to have that confidence and and, and also the guarantee that something fantastical would work out. You know, like I remember, you know, like, oh, the non-melting ice cream, like just to have the confidence of saying, yeah, I'll make some non-melting ice cream. <laughs> that's That's like me saying, you know what? I can't wait to write my next New York Times bestseller. Like that's just to have that kind of confidence and to have that ability to have that creativity. I would be so envious. So yeah, I think it would be, I think it'd be great to, to have someone like Willy Wonka and also to like live in a place that's like a carnival. Not yeah. that I like hanging out at carnivals, but just, just this very surreal, very magical place where if you have guests, if someone comes in, no one knows what to expect. Like, it's just like, this world is crazy. I kind of like that. So I know it's a cliche answer, but I would say Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka's the best. That's, n I mean, it is a cliche answer, but it's a perfect answer. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you got infinite chocolate. Yes. And he's got a kind of confidence that like some people would call it arrogance, but it's not right. real when, it, when it's Willy Wonka. Well, I think he's so weird, maybe crazy, that, that you can't call it arrogance because I think in his mind... Yeah. Just being innocent, like, I like candy. Let's make more candy. But I don't think actually Willy Wonka goes around saying, I make the best candy in the world. I think he's just so fixated on making candy that that it's like, by any means necessary, I want to make this candy the best candy that I can make. I think so. I don't think it's arrogant. I think it's just a little bit crazy. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all a little bit crazy. Oh, well, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. When we I don't have our own chocolate factories. So, like, I mean, his is kind of... <laughs> His is like it works because yeah, like yeah, with a little bit of magic. I think yep. that's, I think that's, I could use a little bit of magic in my life. I think that would just make things a little bit more easier. You know, it'd be a really bad movie idea. <laughs> oh, let's hear it. Willy Wonka after he gives Charlie the chocolate factory. Like, what does he do then? Is he just like, oh, get like there's a, a whole bunch of Willy Wonka books, a great, great glass elevator? I mean, like, he's kind of in that though, like, he's yeah. still in the chocolate factory. Sure. Well, the stories aren't as good either. So. That's true. Yeah, the original is a lot better. Yeah. I had to read the glass elevator one for, in school, and it wasn't wasn't really my thing. No, no. I mean, I could say the same thing about about the Dune novels. You know, you do the yeah. first you do the first Dune, you're like, this is great, and then you read the other five, and you're like, what is happening? He's turning <laughs> into a worm. What? Yeah. So is that just Timothy Chalamet? He only likes doing um, movies that, like, if you go into another one, he just you don't like it anymore? You just like doing series, like sequel after sequel? I have a big crush on Timothy Chalamet, I have to say. I think we all do. Man. Yeah, I have a crush of May. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
A shallow crush. Shallow crush. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was good on Saturday Night Live. Like a lot of the hosts now aren't that great, but he did good. Well, you know, I think I think at my age, I, I have a fond memory of like the older Saturday Night Live episodes with Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was probably my favorite cast member of all time. But, yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, there there are there are little snippets that I can appreciate. I think I'm getting to an age where I'm just like I don't understand this joke because I'm old. <laughs> That's, yeah. I think that's where I'm at. So. I think that like even 20 year olds don't really get a lot of the jokes. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, like I don't alone. understand the jokes that people my age make and I make them myself. I just don't understand what I'm saying. It's just gibberish. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, hang on because you know, you're going to find out that like all these, all these slang words and everything come and go really fast. Like I suddenly turned around. And I'm like, what? What does that even mean? No and one says tubular anymore. Right. So, everybody, let's all give a big hand, a round of applause for Dan. This has been such an amazing interview. Thank you so much. And for to you, and to you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been an honor to be on your show. Yeah, all your answers were so thoughtful, and I'll forever cherish this chat. And I'm sure everybody else will as well. I as so, well. If you are watching this and you haven't yet gone to an independent bookstore or wherever you get books, wherever books are sold, if you haven't yet ordered a book by Dan, then what are you doing? Ch- turn this interview off. I don't. I don't care. You got to buy Dan book. Dan's books. Get out of here. Buy my books. Yeah. Like, <laughs> who needs views? You just got to buy Dan's books. Your day is yeah. going to be ten times better. Yeah. We'll so, everybody listening, keep reading. Check out all of Dan's stories that he's collaborated on, written himself. I mean, that's one hundred twenty. But you, you can do it. We have, a, we have like lives to live. Yeah. Twenty more years. Hundred more years. Buy my books. Give me a purpose for making them. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll see you in the next one, everybody. Bye. Take care, everyone.